You're listening to The Stunt Show on the Nahum Siegel Network. Hello, everybody. My name is Mayor Fertig. Thanks so much for joining us. The Stunt Show, a weekly production on NahumSiegel.com, hosted by a rotating cast of characters, Mark Zomick, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, Daniel Gordon, and me, Mayor Fertig. And thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. We'll fade that music out now. It is the three weeks after all. We just like to get our theme in there. But uh, we're generally in a uh, a cappella mode here on the network, and uh, we'll stick with that. Uh, later in the show, we'll bring you a little bit of acapella music as well, just in keeping with the uh, general theme that we've had going on. Uh, our guests today will be Rabbi Avraham Berkowitz. He is uh, a member of Chabad, who was recently featured, a- and a uh, speaking as a private citizen, a re- recently featured in a series of pieces on NBC News uh, about the uh, Hasidic community. And our guest will be Rabbi Chaim Goldberg. He's a, uh, an employee of OU Kosher who specializes in an important subject for the nine days, namely fish. So <laughs> that's coming up later in the program here on the Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Let's start uh, by talking, by introducing our uh, guest, Rabbi Avraham Berkowitz. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mayor, for having me and inviting me. That's a pleasure, and uh, the, the timing of this uh, worked out nicely, uh, and I'm glad we were able to have this conversation. Uh, the reason we're talking, let me just explain to uh, to everybody that uh, if they, in case they missed it, there were a series of uh, three, I believe, interviews, uh, a th- series of three segments on the NBC News program Rock Center, and uh, fe- uh, hosted by Brian Williams until just recently, and uh, they looked at Jewish Hasidic culture and life in the Hasidic community. And not entirely from a very positive perspective. Uh, they certainly took a, a broader view and in some cases a very negative view. And uh, specifically, um, you were quoted in those stories. And then as it turned out, uh, you say you, that you were misquoted very significantly to the extent that if uh, you, the listener, were about to go on to the uh, NBC News website and search for those stories, for those video segments, you actually wouldn't find them because they've been taken down, which is very, very unusual for a news organization to do. So, uh, Rabbi Berkowitz, uh, could you tell us why they would take such a really drastic step? What happened? Well, just to give an introduction, um, I work, working in the from world or a Hasidic Jew in the wider secular world, right. it's important to whenever we're able to bring about a, a very positive image or help the world understand our specific traditional way of life, in a positive way. I was um, approached by a close friend and colleague, Rabbi Mati Zalikson, who many would know from Chabad.org, right. but has also been very successful in helping the world view Hasidim and Orthodox Jews in a p- more positive light with the Oprah show that he did with uh, interviewing Oprah. And they were sp- they, the story that they were doing was to look at the inside of the Hasidic community, obviously in a very short segment, so no matter what you say is very nuanced. But right. later I learned that they interviewed seven people that were going to speak negatively and in a, in a, with a portrayal that was not going to be positive of right. their experiences of Hasidic life. And mm-hmm. then I was the one person of the Hasidic community. So even though I explained to them very carefully that there are many segments of the from world and the Hasidic world with very unique nuances in each community, it's very hard to, in one broad stroke to speak about Hasidim in general, and if I only spoke about from my experience within the Chabad community or other area, other Hasidic communities, in a certain way I would be throwing under the bus right. other segments of the Hasidic world. It was my job to both speak from a personal perspective of how I'm raising my children, of how I can 
be a success in the mainstream secular world without compromising my Hasidic standards at all. Right. But at the same time, I tried to find some value, some saving grace, even in the strangest customs that were thrown at the right. correspondent of a Hasidic way of life. Now, the, the correspondent was uh, Nancy Schneiderman, who's known, I guess, to NBC uh, NBC viewers. And you touched upon some very, very significant and, you know, in some cases, hot-button issues, including the subject of child sexual abuse. Well, that was where it really... Um, shocked me how they cut and pasted my words because when they, I did an hour and a half interview with the correspondent, the mm-hmm. national correspondent, uh, Dr. Nancy Snyderman, who's an incredible journalist, really focused on medical technology and new science, scientific discoveries. She's on the Today Show every day. But in this case, she never met a Hasidic person before. When she met she me. She told you that? Yes. And she never, she wasn't sure, you know, even how the conversation would go how extreme I would be or right. how indifferent I would be to her. She expected you to maybe throw a blanket over her so you it, wouldn't have to look at her? It seemed there was a lot of, but it, very quickly that level of uncomfort disappeared discomfort, because right. I, the discomfort wasn't there because I was very open about every issue. And it was a very wide-ranging conversation over an hour and a half mm-hmm. about every issue in Hasidic life. Right. Um, and on the issue of sexual child sexual abuse sex abuse it was very it was five minutes mm-hmm. and they never she never actually asked me anything about reporting to authorities but what the producers knew and i didn't know right. was that the entire segment they were doing was on reporting to authorities and how usually in the hasidic community they brush those crimes under the rug and they never reported to the communities and therefore predators roam free why don't you get it out there and say what's the chabad policy on that i don't think it's a chabad policy well, i think it's, it's one the ou shares also actually. it's a it's a i would more i would say it's a a, a normal mainstream view mm-hmm. of any law-abiding citizen right. i don't care how long your beard is Correct. or what religious garb you wear when someone does a crime, especially against children, mm-hmm. in such a terrible way right. that has life-threatening and damages them for life, sure. these crimes must be reported to the law enforcement authorities to deal with those criminals and right. take them off the streets. Whoa. So when I spoke to NBC Rock right. Center, I was only speaking, when I spoke about keeping it within the community, I right. was referring only to prevention. The idea that how do we teach the Hasidic world, even the ones that are very private and not in, not engaged with what's happening in the world as much, how do they teach their children to be aware of these problems? How do they know how to avoid abusers, how they shouldn't become molesters? How, and I started talking about how my little daughter mm-hmm. now comes home from her Hasidic school and knows the ABCs of prevention and D is for do tell. Right. And I said, but if you keep coming from the outside, banging drums, mm-hmm. screaming against the, their way of life, they'll only become more insular and closed off. They're not going to start educating their children or their staff in their camp or their campers or their teachers right. how to change. And I said, we need to face that within. I was not speaking about crimes at all. You were talking about education. Only. 100% education and prevention. And how did NBC play those words? And they, the entire segment was was played about how a Hasidic woman experienced abuse in the community, Mm -hmm. and she was not able to tell her stories. She had no one to tell. And then they had an expert saying how the Hasidim loved to hide the crimes under the rug and never go public about it. And then it showed that when she did go public, they, they smashed her car and they covered her book in blood. Again, looks like dealing with it within the community... Mm -hmm is something that's how they deal with it. And then they now spoke to be, about... Now, to be fair, those things did happen. Right. I mean, but that, 
these things do happen. But the lead but, into but that... that's not what you were talking about. No, I, then the lead into that was discussing when a young woman from the Hasidic community mm-hmm. did report someone to the police. Right. And then they led into my words, the only way to solve this problem is to deal with it within, the in the community. Right. And that 100% made it look like, for any impartial viewer, that I was advocating not reporting abuse to the police and therefore standing up for the criminals and not feeling or helping the victims mm-hmm. in, 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 in dealing with their suffering. And that is 100% against everything I stand for and believe right. in because I also went on to talk about the number one issue of care concern as a parent is what are the schools and camps doing about protecting our mm-hmm. children. Right. So that's where I really was upset. But let, let's go back to the general misportrayal that I felt was leading up to this that I realize now in retrospect I made a mistake in thinking that I could even try to tip the you know balance uh, create a balance in their story when their narrative from the get-go was take young men and women that left the Hasidic community and mm-hmm. it's in their right to do that right but the only port- portrayal that they were putting forward were the strangest customs they weren't going to give gratitude about the beauty of what they had in their childhood, they only were going to find the strangest parts of Hasidic life that are automatically not going to be able to be understood in seconds to a national secular right, audience. Absolutely. So an example was, a few months ago, The View did something terrible. Again, it's not That's just for the Hasidic. In an ABC mm-hmm. program with Barbara Walters and Joy Behar, they had a young woman who also had negative experience in her Hasidic <laughs> upbringing, but she put up a picture of her Hasidic wedding as she has an opaque veil, completely veiled. Right. And they were laughing about, oh, you couldn't see your feet. You know, what kind of wedding is this with, you know, the, and I looked at that picture and the, and the girl didn't defend the right. custom. She just mocked it. It was yeah, absolutely. Well, and, she had a perfect audience. I mean, Joy Behar and, and Barbara, Barbara Walters were not exactly known for their sensitivity to observant Judaism. And when I got the phone call from yeah. the producer after I was Ellickson introduced me, the right. first thing I said to him was, I want to fix that picture of the veil. Why? Because when you see a woman in an opaque veil, you think right away, subjugation of women, Taliban-like practices in the United States. Absolutely. But in fact, mm-hmm. Hasidic women wear a veil only once in their entire lifetime, and that's at their wedding. And even if it's a six-hour affair, it's half hour of their, that affair. And I want to tell you what something more about the, beautiful, the beauty of the veil, that even the most liberal, open-minded woman can respect. And that is that the veil that we wear at the chuppah is a symbol for the chassan, for the groom, that he's not only marrying the girl, his future wife, for her external beauty, but for her essence, for what's concealed. He's marrying her for what is not seen. He's marrying the whole of her. Mm-hmm. And, when, and when that's said at a chuppah ceremony or explained in, an, in a voiceover narration, it gives the viewer a sense of beauty and amazing depth of the tradition of the Hasidic way of life. But what they did was they put the picture of the bride in the veil and then say the groom is not beaming, he's deep in prayer. And then they cut a few words that I said from throughout the hour and a half about how we just met for a few times, they don't know each other. Mm-hmm. And then they speak about, and it looks as if we, you know, subjugating the women to the back right. of the kitchen for, the, for eternity, they're not going to live a happy life. And it was horrible. Now, what's more interesting is that the promo that they first put out. Yeah. The headline, I don't know if you saw it. I didn't. The headline was, one of the things they asked me is, how do you explain Hasidic dating and marriage? Mm-hmm. I spoke at length about love and marriage. Right. And how I have, you know, and, but the fact is that we don't romance our wives 
for two years until we say, oh, this is the right one. We we have a unique way of dating right. where we're paired up through a matchmaker. And there's usually three criteria that you have to meet, and that is mutual values, and that's probably done with the research in advance. And once you meet the person, you connect on a basic level. You have an emotion, feelings for the person, you're attracted to them. Right. And it doesn't have to take too long. You can get engaged, and then there's a, until the marriage is another few months. Mm-hmm. And then I said, in the Hasidic terminology, you could say, we don't marry the one we love, but we love the one we marry. We forever and always will love the one we marry. Right. So they put up a headline, and mm-hmm. they put into the, se- the first segment only the first four words. We're not marrying the one we love. Exactly. And they put it next to the picture of the kala with the veil. I want to ask you if you had any prior discussions with the producer about what they were supposed to put next to that picture. But let me just uh, remind everybody, you're listening to The Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you for listening. My name is Mayor Ferdig, and uh, it's good to have you with us here on NachumSiegel.com. And uh, my guest is Rabbi Avraham Berkowitz. He is a member of Chabad. He uh, recently spoke to NBC News, uh, speaking as a private citizen, uh, about uh, or, or contributing to their series on Hasidic life and culture, and uh, he is our guest now. You were saying that they only they put the words "We're not marrying the one we love" next to a picture of uh, Devorah Feldman. From, no, 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 not her. A veiled bride, a veiled bride, a bad wedding. Anyone, not not identified, uh, and they put the words "We're not marrying the one we love." Did you have any discussion with them in advance about what you thought they should put there, or words that you specifically wanted to make sure they did highlight? Well, I, you know, when you speak for an hour and a half, mm-hmm. I, and I'm not the producer, I, I really couldn't dictate to them what they should highlight. Absolutely. But I definitely, we had conversations mm-hmm. specifically about the misconception, how dangerously, uh, the way it's presented, if it's not done right, mm-hmm. people, 99% of the people would see a veiled bride and think Taliban. Right. But if it's explained and they show the bride also unveiled, which they did, but without explaining Right. the deeper meaning of the veil. And to put those four words, we're not marrying the one we love. So immediately I wrote them a note and I said, imagine you asked me what are the Ten Commandments, and I said the Ten Commandments include to kill, to steal, to not be faithful to your wife. I just leave out the words do not. Mm-hmm. It's outrageous. That's what you just did, you're saying. I said by not putting in the second half, you purposely wanted to portray the Hasidim as living in quote-unquote arranged marriages mm-hmm. and loveless marriages right. and I said and, and more so if you want to, if you didn't have this bias then why didn't you take the second half of what I said only what if they would have put up a headline we love the one we marry oh that sounds too good I said <laughs> love their wives I mean we right. can't put that because that's not the portrayal that these young men and women that left speak about or that they the world should know that we actually 90 you know a vast majority of our Young men and women and the married li- women and men in our, mm-hmm. our community are deeply in love and have beautiful families. Right. But that's not the portrayal that they wanted to present to the public. What are some of the other things you spoke about in and, and the areas in which you you feel that you were misinterpreted or misquoted? And then we'll uh, after you, we talk about that, we'll, we'll share with our listeners uh, a little bit of the NBC statement, the editor's note that they put up online in place of those three videos. Well, I mean, it's, I can, I had back and forth conversations now again with the producer, and they weren't so willing to, to agree that they were biased. They kept saying that it was a fair and balanced, mm-hmm. um, segment, and our, our side was heard fairly. But it was, it's interesting that it only, it was only fair and balanced 
based on what their narrative was, and that was to present the Hasidim in a very backwards light. And what I kept speaking about throughout my hour-and-a-half interview was the progress that's happening in the Hasidic world. I mentioned Turo College's special programs for you know young men and women within the sensitivities of our community, having separate classes for men and women in many different fields, if it's psychology, if it's technology, if it's even nursing, and on and on they did, would not mention any of that in the full course. I, I mentioned so many different areas of new ways of making a parnasa. I mentioned the major job conference, LBT, that, that was hosted 10 days ago. Thousands of very from Hasidic men are now finding new ways in the online marketing and, and online sales and reselling on Amazon, but they didn't want to hear anything about the progress. I even made a prediction that within 10 years, you're going to have a CEO of a Fortune 500 company that's a Hasidic Jew. That's that, an interesting prediction. And I said it, look, I said recently I met with Ajay Banga, mm-hmm. who is the CEO of MasterCard. Right. And he's a, he's a religious Sikh with an untrimmed beard and a turban, and he spends tens of hours of his week steeped in his religious tradition, and yet he reached the pinnacle of right. American business. And that's going to happen in the Hasidic world. But the question is, is America ready to accept us that we can be both uncompromising in our Hasidic way of life and our dress and our tradition and be a success in, in the modern world? And that is what we need to show the world that we're doing. And we will do it. And it can work. That is fascinating. My prediction, by the way, is that people ultimately will accept that. It will happen yeah. because they'll see, look, if Joe Lieberman was a trendsetter in the observant world mm-hmm. and Jack Lew is, is a trendsetter in the Oval Office, eventually the, the, the circle will only widen more right. and more. Mm-hmm. The people, you know, there are people that become doctors. Now, the Hasidic world can only maintain a certain amount of jobs within, you know, Safrim, Shachtim, Melamdim, Rabbanim, and then in the diamond market and the financial services market and selling insurance and then in real estate and then in managing warehouses. And now they're going into many other fields as long as they don't have to drop their Yiddish Chassidish values. Right. And it's happening more and more as our community grows. We're meeting these challenges. And that is the story that people like Mati Zelikson and I know that Allison, Allison Joseph, Joseph from who, Jew in the City, Jew in the City is doing a lot of work to show the world that you can, you don't have to compromise and mayor what you're doing and what the OU is doing. And that's so important that we unite as an entire from Hasidic community showing that when, because then the 300 million Americans view us, they see us all as one from Yeshiva University to the most modern Orthodox KJ in, in Manhattan. We're the same as Satmar. Correct. And when Absolutely we try to true. separate one from the other, oh, we're different. <laughs> we're just throwing a segment of the Hasidic right. or Jewish population under the bus, and it doesn't help our cause. I was thinking about that uh, the other night. You know, there, there's been a lot of talk, uh, a lot of it nasty, and some of it probably fair criticism about the um, about uh, Walmart in Monticello, which is of course a hub of you know from and observant uh, vacationers during the summer. And there's been a lot of talk and a lot of criticism about uh, people's manners and how they relate to the staff there. And the pushback from the staff um, has been, in some cases, really unremitting hostility. And uh, I, was in the, I was in that store in the middle of the night uh, with my kids the other night. And we were there about midnight, one in the morning. And anybody who knows me knows I, I, don't, look, I don't look Hasidic, that's for sure. Um, I was probably wearing shorts and a polo shirt and sneakers and, of course, a big yarmulke on my head. And I walked up to a guy and I asked him a question. And if I tell you how rude the guy was to me, 
Um, and I, I don't know if it was because he doesn't like Jews. I don't know if it's because he doesn't like vacationers. I don't know if it was because he just had a fight with his wife or his boss. But <laughs> let me tell you, I was really thinking about exactly what you just said. We are all alike and all lumped up as one. So let me add another point that yeah. as we go out in the summer and a lot of us are in upstate New York and in the mountains or on vacation, mm-hmm. we need to remember, and in Chabad this is something that we all know very well, you're a shaliach to the world. You, When you wear a yarmulke, when you're dressed in a tzniyas fashion, every man, woman, boy, and girl represents the entire Frum community, the Jewish people, when you walk out to the world. Right. And your actions will be judged. And that's why you need to live lifnimishar esadin. A chassid means that you're more pious. You can't have less manners. You have to go to the, even if you're within your right, don't be within your right. Don't offend people. Be kind. Be extra courteous. Be grateful. Be thankful. Clean off. Clean up after yourself. Don't leave a mess. Make sure you're not too loud. Go to the extreme. I'll ne- and it works both ways. That we're stereotyped. But I was in I was in Newark Airport, and I'll never forget the story. I had I, there was a flight that was delayed. I was coming to pick someone up, and I was on the monorail for an extra hour and a half, just viewing passengers. I was people watching for yeah. an hour and a half, and I was sitting in the cart, and the doors opened up, and a Hasidic family of about nine children plus their parents with their pekalach came into the car right. and they were doing what they could do you know managing nine kids i know what it is you know i grew up in a family of nine my wife's from a family of yeah. 10 i i can i know i have five children it's right. a big job right. they were trying their best to bring all the kids in speaking yiddish keep them hushed and there was a secular jewish couple standing next to me and looking at them and i they didn't realize i was right behind them and they said they spoke so disgustingly about these Hasidic Jews. Look how they're dressed. Look what an embarrassment they are. They weren't doing anything wrong. They were just coming in with a lot of children. Look how many children they have. And this man was speaking disparagingly about Hasidim. They were Amish. He would have been fawning over them. But this is amazing what happens. The the next stop they get off, and one more stop goes by, and this couple's still on, talking bad about the Hasidim. Mm -hmm. He's telling his wife. And then one stop later, he looks up, and he says, he screams, Stacy! Look, we just missed our stop. We just missed our stop. Why didn't you tell me to get off? And he starts screaming at his wife. Oh. Why did you not get tell me to get off? Now we're going to have to wait another 20 minutes. We're going to miss our flight. He started berating his wife, and she was in tears. Uh, I suddenly opened my mouth, which I never would do. I said, right. Sir, I just heard you five minutes ago speaking against this Hasidic people, the way they dress and how many kids they have, and here you are screaming at your wife in public. Why? What, what, is that a double standard? And she goes, Yeah, you're right. You're right, especially on my birthday. Oh, what a great story. And I realized that yeah. we are stereotyped. Right. That everybody has bad manners. But right. if we, Hasidim could have bad manners, and, and mainstream people, that's how we yes, are. Absolutely. But we, we need to remember Pirkei Avis every single day when we walk in the street. We need to be an example to the world. Don't use pejoratives. Don't say words about other populations as much as you don't want them to label mm-hmm. us. Right. Be respectful, be do, kind. Do unto others. Our guest is Rabbi Avraham Berkowitz. You're listening to The Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Mayor Furtig. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. We appreciate it. Uh, we're at NachumSiegel.com. The Stunt Show, of course, brought to you weekly by a rotating cast of characters, including Mark Zomick, Daniel Gordon, and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. My name, again, Mayor Furtig, and uh, uh, Rabbi Berkowitz, uh, if, you, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a moment to, uh, to get back to the... Uh, the statement, the editor's note, as they put it, uh, from NBC News that's up on their website. And uh, they say, we want to clarify a quote from Rabbi Avraham Berkowitz that was included in our web story about sexual abuse in the Hasidic community. In our story, we reported that Rabbi Berkowitz, Rabbi Berkowitz insists the community can handle the problem itself. 
He said, uh, whatever these types of crimes are have to be eradicated, and in order to eradicate them, we have to do it within the way the community knows how to solve its problems. You mentioned this earlier. Uh, you said, you said, you were quoted by them, cause sometimes when you come banging with drums from the outside, the community becomes more insular. By Berkowitz says that when he referred to the community knowing how to solve its problems, he was referring to efforts to prevent sexual abuse, not whether to report it to police. And he says he has always advocated reporting suspected abuse to the appropriate law enforcement agencies and that rabbis work together hand-in-hand with the authorities. He added that, quote, these deviants must be punished, close quote, and NBC News said, we regret any misunderstanding. And, and then they went on to say, uh, they, they, you know, they went on, and it's, it's all online, you could find it, but uh, that is uh, that is quite a quite a statement from them, not perhaps as satisfying as it might have been, but they also took down those those pieces. Uh, did they give you any in- information or any indication of why they took what is frankly for them a pretty extreme step? Look, I mean, once I was able to, you know, not just, usually when you scream and you bang, they become more insular. <laughs> but the case was pretty clear cut right. that I was misrepresented and my words were used out of context completely and everybody understood it that way. There were comments of people saying, how could these Hasidim be above the law? How could they create their own vigilante laws based on the words that I said? And it's something that I never said, and I'm not going to go into the legalities of it. I have no interest in suing them. Um, I'm not interested in, again, misportraying the Hasidic community or Jews in any way as, oh, well, that's what we want to do is, you know, find a, a reason why we can make some money, which was, again, a negative stereotype, which is not true. Right. But I do want to educate the mainstream liberal media, media in finding new ways to portray the Hasidic way of life and finding the positive sides of our communities. Look at the values that we're able to preserve in the most permissive society of a million choices, how you can live a beautiful family life and and every American, Jew or non-Jew, can learn from us. Don't only bring up the strangest customs that have no relevance to them. And I think that is what the media has to embrace. And no story, because this story of Hasidic young men and women going off the, the way and mm-hmm. being angry, there's been that's, that story has been told by Al Jazeera, by CBS, by ABC, by CNN, by NPR. And there's the experts that they make a living off of telling that story. But who has told the positive narrative of how we're able to rebuild a Hasidic community with our values intact and become a success in the mainstream world? Right. And that's a story I challenge any major network to do. And I'm sure all of us, uh, yourself, or as a young man, Ellie Fetterman, a young lawyer in Florida, took took this case on and wrote some articles against the injustice, or Matiz Alexson at Chabad.org, who's been doing an incredible job, or Allison Joseph, as you mentioned, Find the positive side of portraying a traditional Hasidic community. And again, I, I mentioned so many areas of where we, we do, um, we're making a difference in the country. And we're a part of America that should be respected and honored. But at this point, it wasn't the narrative they wanted to tell. Right. So I have no, um, I'm, I'm ready to move on from this specific story as long as we continue collectively to use our voices within the Frum and Hasidic world to help educate the, the 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 mainstream media how to portray us in a positive way right making lemon make, making lemonade from lemons well i think we have more than we're, we're actually we're 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 jewels we're, right. we're peers yeah, we're, we're deli- there's a lot of delicious fruits to taste from right. they just choose you know they they ask me what about facebook so what about it? <laughs> right. Are you allowed? I said, look, you know, when you say the word censorship, it automatically sounds like, you know, we cut our, our children off. I said, but 
when you go to the movies, they, they censor the movies, right? Mm-hmm. They, on the airlines, they, they don't put, they, they have censored movies. Facebook itself is a censored website. They don't allow certain pictures right. of violence or abuse or, or racism mm-hmm. to come on the site. I said, right. but it doesn't match the standards of a Hasidic family. So why, what's wrong if we put an additional filter on the web that we want to use? Meaning if, if you explain it in, in a perspective mm-hmm. that they can right. relate to, they say, oh, well, that's so interesting. That's enlightening. You're right. right. We all censor. Every family right, censors in some way what and, their and children read, right. hear, or exposed to. Do you, do, do you want them to, what kind of music are you listening to? Mm-hmm. What books are you reading? But when the Hasidim do it, it becomes like, oh, we're anti-education. Right. My, my 14-year-old, uh, and we've had this conversation several times, uh, just recently about a, uh, a, um, a PG-13 film he wanted to see. And we said no. And he said, but it's PG-13. I said it's somebody else's idea of what's suitable for a 13-year-old. It is not this family's idea of what's suitable for a 13-year-old. And again, no, you can't watch it. Right, and every single time I was asked a question from you know what these young Hasidic, former Hasidim mm-hmm. were speaking in the strangest terms, I would come back from a personal perspective saying how it's done in my house when they spoke about the universe. I mean, I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, my, my kid knows the... The galaxy better than any any of their producers, and right. he, he he in his free time he's a student on Code Academy, and he's a nine year old boy that can write HTML and JavaScript. But wow. they I don't want they don't want to hear that because yeah. he could be a Hasidic boy, and he learns Gemara better as a result because he understands right. structure right. and how things are. You know, you know, there's an opening of a brisa, and there's a mishnah, and there's the right. there's the meat of the Gemara, and there's Rashi and Taisus. It's similar to Code, but they don't want to hear that. Yet, I think that this will change. We're going to work together. Right. And again, I call on anyone who wants to make a Kiddush Hashem for the good reason, to work together from every element and the entire spectrum of the from community to show the true face of the Hasidish or from way of life and the positive example. That was a wonderful analogy you just made about Gemara and Code. That was fascinating. My son actually told it to me. Really? Yeah, he's, he's, it was his little, he said, it's now I understand better how to learn a page of Gemara. Fascinating. Um, the the other thing I would add is really something you said before when we were speaking uh, off the air. Um, it's a challenge sometimes to, as an observant person, ask to comment about another segment of the observant community of the, of the, of the Jewish world. And, and you, you're not always necessarily in sync completely with their hashkafa or their outlook. And yet it, it's, it's a challenge, I think, that all of us have to meet to be able to, without apologizing necessarily for things we don't agree with, to discuss them in a way that doesn't really throw them under the bus, because as you said, we're we're representing everybody. I agree with you, and it's, it was a challenge for me. A lot of people said, "How could you even try?" As a person who belongs to the Chabad community, who has a lot of engagement with the secular world, right. and how could you even talk on and 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 on behalf of the more from and right. I would want to say again, the ultra-Orthodox, which is the worst pejorative. <laughs> right. And we have to get rid of it. And I know Mati Zalikson of Chabad Org is on a campaign with a lot of other groups to eliminate that word and change it to maybe traditional Orthodox, but definitely not ultra-Orthodox. Well, to me, it's offensive. When it's, I ran a Jewish newspaper, I, I think I tried to outlaw that, that phrase also. But the, I, the idea, I mean, nobody would call somebody ultra-liberal, mm-hmm. you know? Right. It, nobody would use that word ultra on anything. Where is it used? Right. It, it's almost saying that it's a pejorative on me. But in any case, that idea, I said, we have a responsibility, even if it's not our minhag or our masora or our tradition, mm-hmm. to find a way to explain it that you don't malign 100,000, 200,000, a half a million Hasidish Jews right. that maybe practice in a different way than you, just as much as I would want someone to defend 
the way I practice, right. even if it's not their view? And how can I expect them to judge the entire from world if I myself don't judge respectfully and find ways to understand even the most from communities? You know, a, a secular, uh, a secular uh, way of looking at that is, uh, they say, politics ends at the water's edge. You know, and the president goes overseas. In fact, the president was recently criticized for making something that was uh, taken as a political comment, um, referring to something with the Republican Party. I don't remember what it was, but uh, you know, people, it's been a long-standing practice in American culture that politics ends at the water's edge. When you know, when when you know, you represent you, all you your represent constituents, all Americans. So it's it's really the same concept here. You know, well, just uh, one one final note in our uh, conversation with Rabbi Avraham Berkowitz. Um, this is not the first time NBC has done this. You know. There are many or many news organ look news organizations make mistakes. I was a journalist for a working journalist for many years. Mistakes happen, um, but there are mistakes and then there are mistakes and there are mistakes and then there are things that really have the uh, the feel of uh, of being somewhat deliberate, you know, uh, in terms of somebody putting a point of view out there. Um, I, I would call attention to uh, to something that happened in uh, in December. Involving the uh, George Zimmerman alleged shooting of uh, Trayvon Martin, who was a young black man walking through his gated community. It wasn't in an alleged shooting; he actually shot him. Uh, well, right, but uh, well, how, how he was perceived? He's how on he was trial. Perceived. He's on trial for murder. Right. Um, so the uh, NBC News actually apologized for the way it edited a the tape of a 911 call placed by George Zimmerman. Um, the the uh, misleading version of that call, which was actually played on the Today Show. Uh, led viewers to believe that Zimmerman volunteered to the 911 operator that Martin was black. The full audio from that phone call reveals that what Zimmerman said would, when Zimmerman mentioned Martin's race only when the 911 operator asked him, is he white, black, or Hispanic, which is pretty standard. If anybody's ever called 911 about something like that, they would know that that's a common question. Um, so NBC News, in that statement, a couple of months back, said during our investigation, it became evident that there was an error made in the an error made in the production process that we deeply regret. We will be taking the necessary steps to prevent this from happening in the future and apologize to our viewers. So apparently they didn't take enough steps, and the same thing uh, happened to you, apparently, on an NBC program. Well, if you remember, there was the uh, case where the Harvard lawyer was uh, arrested by police in Washington, D.C., and then they had the uh, beer summit with the president. Yes. So um, I will say that Dr. Nancy Snyderman, who's a national correspondent, uh, even though I was the first Hasidic Jew that she actually sat down with and spoke to, she was quite enlightened with the unique, the different response because every time I responded to any question she had based on the allegations or the strangest, uh, you know, gross ideas that these young men and women were trying to portray in a very negative way our community, right. I would always come back with very enlightening, progressive ideas, how things are changing, and there's even in the most strict communities. And she was very taken by it. And I can tell you that she was very fair and honest and open and warm in, in our conversations. I can't talk about the backroom editors, and I have right. my feelings for them. But I did, I, I did propose a, after, as a result of all this, uh, all the, the cut and paste that happened, and especially in light of the allegations that were put on me about the not reporting sexual abuse, heaven forbid, to have not a beer summit, but a Shabbos summit. And I invited her family to join my family for a Shabbos, which she accepted. So she accepted. Yeah, so hopefully good news will come That's fantastic. As, as we go forward. But again, the purpose of my coming on this show is to talk to the 
the breadth of the, the modern Orthodox, liberal, whatever you want, I don't care with the titles, the labels, we're all B'nai Yisrael, we're in the three weeks now, we need to find ways to shed ourselves of our biases against ourselves, the sinas chinam, find ways to have and understand and deeply respect all of us. And I think in the summer, somehow, we all get to see each other. You know, we're out of our own communities. We're in the mountains or on vacations. We can we meet up and kosher in different places. Let's make a Kiddush Hashem together. Let's create a united front portraying the from Hasidish world in a united portrayal of positivity and good example to the rest of the world. I mean, OU did a great service during the tornado in, in, in Oklahoma. They immediately raised funds in the entire network of their shoals throughout the country, and they partnered up with Chabad, who are right. obviously outward Hasidim, walking amongst the, the, the poorest, uh, the people that were devastated. And wasn't it an amazing Kiddush Hashem of we, United Front? It was remarkable, it? and we were very proud to do it. So that's exactly that where we uh, work together, and we should continue. Every, even the most Hasidic groups, with everyone should just... We don't have to agree on everything, but where we do agree, let's find that common ground for okay. the greater good. Rabbi Avram Berkowitz, thank you very much for coming on the Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank you, and looking forward to working together and meeting again. Same here. We'll be right back after this. Shimor 
pam pam parabaram pam parabaram pam parabaram pam 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 parabaram pam pam parabaram pam parabaram pam 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 That was Bitachon with Dror Yikra here on the Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, I was just reminded of one of my favorite uh, a cappella songs in keeping with our uh, three weeks format here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Reminded of that this past Shabbos at the Bar Mitzvah of Gidon Hagler in Elizabeth. And uh, I enjoyed sitting uh, with uh, his father, Rabbi Chaim Hagler, singing Zmiros after lunch. And uh, we, we attempted that one. And it worked out pretty well because there were some people there who actually knew the song. So uh, th- that went nicely. And uh, as long as we're on the subject, Mazel Tov to Rabbi Chaim and Afrona Hagler and to Gidon on his bar mitzvah. It was an actually a really beautiful affair, including a siyam, uh by the bar mitzvah boy and uh, Mazel Tov to everybody. So you are listening to The Sun Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Mayor Fertig, and uh, this is a weekly production of the Nachum Siegel Network brought to you by a rotating cast of characters, including Mark Zamek, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, and Daniel Gordon. And uh, this week it's mine, all mine. And uh, as we are approaching the nine days, Rosh Chodesh Av is on Sunday night, July 7th, uh, there's a very, very important food item uh, that really comes front and center in the uh, kosher diet, and that subject is fish. Ah, fish. So, if we're going to talk about fish, it seems to me that it would be logical to go to um, one of the people in the kosher establishment who knows more about the subject of fish than probably anybody, it certainly would, uh, would certainly would put him up there with the, uh, with the, with the greats in the fish category. And I'm talking about, uh, OU Kosher Rabbinic Coordinator Rabbi Chaim Goldberg. And Rabbi Goldberg, thank you for coming on the Stunt Show. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, I am glad that you're here. Um, before we get into, um, b- before we get into your, your background, your bona fides, and your uh, how, how you came across this. I just want to give people a little tease. In a couple of minutes, we will share with our listeners the story of your recent whirlwind trip to a bastion of kosher food processing, maybe not, called Uganda. And I really want to hear that story. But first, just tell us a little bit of how you gained this expertise. Well, uh, I've been working here at OU Kosher for about 11 years. I Got my smicha from Yeshiva Chaim Berlin in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and I uh, came here to work at the OU, and I was told to uh, specialize in fish, and that I should make it my business to immerse myself under the ocean as much as I can. <laughs> and, uh, Do you dive? <laughs> I, I don't, but I, uh, I did take my kids uh, fishing on Monday off Sheepshead Bay, yes. <laughs> um, so um, I've been doing a lot of traveling, because uh, you realize there isn't a whole lot of... Uh, of industrial fish production happening in uh, New York City. Go figure. Yeah, so um, the good news is that the fish tend to hang out in some really beautiful, exotic places, and uh, the OU has been very good to send me to all those places. What are some of the interesting places you visited? Um, well, um, this is my fifth continent. 
Uh, I was offered a trip to the other two, but uh, both of them I had to reject. So I've which been were to, those? Well, I, Europe, I, I assume. I've been to Europe. I've been to Asia. I've now been to Africa, and uh, I've been to South America, and of course I've been to plants all around North America. Right. Uh, Canada, across the country, the United States, and Alaska. So Uganda. Why Uganda? Well, people think of Uganda as being a landlocked country, which technically is true, but it's also. Uh, major border on Lake Victoria, mm -hmm. which is often referred to as the largest and most productive freshwater lake in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, during the time of the British protectorate of that region, uh, someone had introduced uh, what's actually a predatory species called Nile perch. Oh, sure. And uh, the Nile perch, actually, um, the, the British had been discussing whether it would be to the advantage or to the disadvantage of the locals if they would introduce Nile perch, mm -hmm. and the uh, government typically will do... <clears throat> While considering whether or not to do it, somebody decided to get off his horse and go do it for them. <laughs> so uh, the point was rendered moot, and uh, mm -hmm. now, um, exactly as the environmentalists of that generation suggested, the Nile perch ate out everything in the lake, commercially speaking, except for tilapia, which is also a top predator. And Really? Uh, yeah, so practically speaking, there's no commercial fish production to speak of except for Nile perch and tilapia. Another victory for uh, British imperialism, I guess. I suppose, yeah. So again, so why Uganda? Why did What's in Uganda that's not elsewhere? Why did you have to go there? Well, since Nile perch are so readily available uh, off of Lake Victoria, mm -hmm. uh, so um, we had an OU manufacturer who was interested in uh, doing a feasibility study of a producer that they had lined up in uh, Kampala, which right. is the capital, right off a 45-minute drive from the airport in Antepa. And uh, we went down there to go inspect it and to confirm that, in fact, the plant is theoretically up to standards that could potentially produce OU product. And uh, that was what I was sent to do. Did you find that it is? Uh, yeah, the plant, uh, the plant, the plant passed with uh, with flying colors. Um, there's no reasonable commercial access to anything but Nile perch and tilapia, which are both oh. kosher species. Right. And the fish do come in whole with their skin on, so they're easily identifiable. We'll talk more about what people need to know about identifying their kosher fish and yes. what we do in terms of OU certification of fish. Um, but yeah, since the fish came in whole and they were clearly a kosher species, and the plant has no access to any uh, commercial species other than Nile perch, and there were no additives that were introduced into the facility. There was nothing preventing us from giving OU kosher certification to the plant. Good to go. Very interesting. But tell, tell us a little bit more about Uganda. That sounds, feels, even just to say it, feels dangerous. Were, well, you, in, were you in jeopardy while you were there? <coughs> oh, I sure hope not. Um, yeah, no, um, we, uh, we flew Turkish Air via Istanbul, and apparently um, the normal mode for major airlines is to fly through Rwanda, either on the way into Uganda or on the way out of Uganda. Yeah. So uh, and we got to stop in Rwanda technically, uh, but they wouldn't let us off the plane. I really wanted to go get some. It's a known some, pleasure spot. They wouldn't let you off to do a little sightseeing. Yeah. No. I. I really. I wasn't. I wasn't interested in being part of any kind of insurgency or anything. Really. If, in case the Department of Homeland Security is listening up. No. I'm. I'm a good guy. I just wanted souvenirs. That's all. <laughs> but uh, they said no. And uh, no, we sat on uh, on the plane until we landed in Uganda at three in the morning. Right. And um, we uh, cleared customs in the airport, and uh, we had a driver take us 45 minutes or so to the uh, beautiful hotel in Kampala where we stayed for about three hours. When you say beautiful, are you being serious or are you Oh, joking? no. We, we stayed at the uh, Sheraton Kampala, which, was, uh, which is a beautiful hotel. Yeah. Um, $300 a night by U.S. standards is not an excessive hotel, but realizing that... Uh, the typical income for locals in uh, in Uganda is significantly less than it is here in the United States. That right. was it's probably the nicest hotel 
uh, in the city. And uh, there were um, some executives from Deloitte that were staying with us there and other things like that. So it was a beautiful hotel, which we only got to stay in for, like I said, three hours um, <laughs> before we needed to uh, quickly uh, daven shacharis, grab breakfast, and run to the factory. Right. Um, we did our inspection. And then we went back to the hotel to catch another quick nap before running back to the airport and catching a flight home. How many people were with you? Uh, it was just myself and um, uh, one of the owners of the OU client, which was interested in researching the plants as well. Very interesting. And, and thank God, Baruch Hashem, we did not require Israeli commandos to get you out of Uganda. Uh, no, we didn't. Uh, I did take pictures of the airstrip at night just to show people exactly how dark it was. And uh, I did also notice um, the symbol for the local telephone provider is Uganda Telecom, which is uh, actually, oddly enough, pretty much an OU symbol. It's a smiley face with a circle around it. And uh, I will be speaking with the OU's trademark compliance department to discuss whether we should press charges against Uganda Telecom for impersonating the <laughs> OU symbol. There would be a great deal of irony in that. But so that's fascinating. So. Uh, Speaking in general terms, uh, because, of course, in all seriousness, uh, people eat a lot of fish during the nine days, which are coming up with, as I said, Rosh Chodesh Av beginning on uh, Sunday night, July 7th. Um, what, what are some of the things people should know about uh, buying kosher fish, both in the New York area and perhaps more importantly outside you know, the New York area where there are kosher fish stores um, you know, as standalone operations? Yeah, that's actually an excellent question, and uh, I'm glad that you pointed it out that way because... In fact, uh, people who live out of town tend to have a better knowledge of what the rules we're going to talk about in a few minutes are, simply by, by virtue of the fact that they don't have access to all kosher certified fish stores. Right. So, so um, it's uh, it's something that we here in town sometimes take for granted. That I know what exactly kosher means. I walk over to the store a block away and I just pick up whatever the guy in the behind the counter said is fine. Right. And, That's yeah. already in slices, perhaps. <clears throat> Exactly. So, uh, no, it's actually very, very critical to realize that, first of all, in order to be a kosher fish species, uh, fish must be a thin fish species, meaning that the Torah requires that every fish in order to be kosher has to have fins and scales that can be removed without ripping the skin. That's how the rabbis explain the terms snapper vakaskesis that we find in the Torah. Not just fins and scales, but specifically scales that can be removed without ripping the skin. So fins and scales are the kindergarten version. Right. Only the kindergartners that haven't yet gotten a presentation from Rabbi Goldberg, because um, part of OU Kosher coming, uh, the OU has sent me all around the country, and now uh, a week ago to uh, Toronto to go uh, spread the uh, the OU word about uh, what exactly it means to buy kosher fish and how you would go about buying kosher fish in a non-certified fish environment. Right. And uh, we make it our business to speak everyone from kindergartners at Chalamis a couple of months ago uh, up until uh, Turo College a few years ago we did a presentation. We, uh, we try to make sure that everyone understands that fins and scales has nothing to do with the kosher status of a fish. You want to make sure that there are scales that can be removed without ripping the skin. So I'm going to put on my uh, chief communications officer hat for a moment. Have we ever put out videos? We actually did, and uh, it's actually, uh, you, you can Google uh, Rabbi Goldberg Fish video, and you'll, you'll see a couple of the different videos that we've done. We did OU Kosher Tidbit, and we mm -hmm. also did, uh, a few years ago, intended primarily for schools, uh, Rabbi Safran, uh, Rabbi Dr. Safran, uh, had me produce a video intended actually for fourth graders or so, and uh, it was uh, so well taken by adults that uh, I actually got some complaints that I didn't include Mara McCoymos of what I was quoting from. <laughs> and I wrote back to the fellow that, uh, you know, 
Uncle Moishi doesn't give Marmakoimus either, so why are you picking on me? But uh, yeah, no, we we have we have done videos and uh, we do live presentations and uh, yep, I've uh, spoken to schools from uh, Arkansas uh, to California to Boston and uh, all places in between. Whenever someone's interested in learning about uh, kosher fish production, the OU is happy to throw me on an airplane and uh, assuming that there's no commandos needed, I'll be happy to get off on my own and uh, give a presentation. You're lucky they don't ask you to swim. Uh, yeah, no, I have not yet been uh, asked to swim to a presentation. That's true. Well, that's good. Our guest is Rabbi Chaim Goldberg. He's a rabbinic coordinator at OU Kosher. You're listening to The Stunt Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Mayor Furtick. Thanks for joining us. We've got a couple of minutes to go in this week's edition of The Stunt Show. And uh, talking with Rabbi Goldberg, Rabbi, Rabbi Goldberg, easy for me to say, about uh, about the subject of kosher fish. Um, what are some of the most challenging we were talking about out of town, and you, you explained skin, fins, scales, uh, with with the scales needing to be uh, removable without ripping the skin. What are um, are there any species that are particularly challenging? Well, one thing that we find people making serious mistakes about, mm-hmm. and that's both out of town and in town, is that they'll go to the store and they'll try and purchase a fish based on a common name. For example, they'll go into the store and ask for tilapia. Mm-hmm. So everybody knows tilapia is kosher. But in fact, if a person's going into a non-certified store mm-hmm. and that tilapia is skinless, right. that fish is completely forbidden. And you cannot believe the proprietor that, in fact, it's a kosher fish for multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. For cautious reasons, first of all, the rabbis forbade whenever we couldn't identify a fish species. That's referred to as kirve dogim, literally fish viscera that the rabbis forbade any time we couldn't positively identify a fish by using the skin as a form of positive identification. Mm -hmm. So practically, most fish species are sold in America with their skin removed already. And that means that when people are going to the fish store, both in town and out of town, they're looking at fish that typically have the skin removed, in which case they cannot purchase it, no matter how many assurances the fellow behind the counter gives them of the integrity of the product. That's from the classical standpoint. As far as the Food and Drug Administration is concerned, mm-hmm. they've advised not only the Orthodox Union, but all consumers who visit their website, that uh, species substitution and economic fraud issues are significant. I was just ex- reading about this. Yes, to the extent that, that consumers don't realize that uh, an, a non-scrupulous fish seller and by fish seller, I don't necessarily mean a retailer, but even a distributor, a master distributor, somebody higher up on the food chain uh, <laughs> who's distributing the product can actually substitute one fish for another, and the end user may never realize that what he's got is not the species indicated on the on the box. So. Is there any instance where that would be legal, where they would be doing something that was you know, within the letter of the law in terms of a substitution, but perhaps cause a problem with consciousness? That's an excellent question. The answer is no. And the problem is that FDA, who you realize has governmental oversight on this issue, has warned that the buyer must beware, which whenever the government who's supposed to be responsible for something warns you that you better beware, you really should take their word on it and realize that this is something that you just can't assume that because the box says a certain species that it's automatically that species. And actually, uh, uh, Ocean Watch, which is a a marketing group that was trying to push uh, economic fraud issues, in their recommendations for how a person could avoid getting frauded up, one of their recommendations was something that our Chazal have recommended for 2,000 years, and that was to buy fish with skin on, because with the skin on, you cannot be frauded out into buying the wrong species. Right. Has, has there ever been a major scandal in terms of, uh, that, that the OU has discovered, in terms of uh, misrepresentation? Uh, w- most of our issues of misrepresentation tend to be somebody representing something as kosher that hadn't been kosher for technical reasons as opposed to significant economic fraud-related reasons. We did have a manufacturer that we dropped because we caught certain things that we found to be off-color, 
and we had reason to believe that he was misrepresenting his salmon as being, quote-unquote, Copper River Red Salmon. Mm-hmm. It's a very highly desired, economically speaking, species, very expensive. And uh, somehow when no one else had red Copper River Reds, he always did. Abu- abundantly. And abundantly, yeah. And you, you just kind of wonder uh, how he managed that. And uh, it turned out afterwards with DNA testing that he did not, in fact, sell Copper River Salmon. And we were uh, wise to him before the government caught him. That's true. Very interesting. So the, that person was dropped from supervision. Dropped. He is no longer certified. That's correct. Very, very interesting. Any particular, you, you say you've been doing this for how many years now? 11 years. Yeah. 11 years as an expert on kosher fish for the Orthodox Union. Um, when people ask you about what you do, is there any one particular story that just jumps out of your, you know, jumps to your mind as this sort of, for the interested listener, really personifies what I do? Well, um, I think it was back in 2006, uh, the OU had sent me on an assignment to review a uh, anchovy oil processing plant in Peru, and that plant was uh, in an area that was just hit by a tsunami mm-hmm. that wiped out everything in the area except for a youth hostel in the hotel and in the uh, factory that we were looking to produce in. So right. we uh, we got to spend a couple of days in a luxurious uh, ten dollar a night youth hostel um, while we were reviewing a anchovy oil processing plant, where the local government had assured us that there's nothing but anchovies being handled in the plant. Right. But uh, being a little bit smarter than that, I brought a Spanish-speaking mashkiach with me, and we talked to the quality control person just the right way, so we could find internal secret documents that the plant had been maintaining, showing that they were regularly receiving adulterated caches with 10% shrimp mixed in as part of the natural persining fishing process that right. they weren't governmentally required to remove, and we caught that, we repaired it, and now we have on-site supervision to make sure that that doesn't happen to any OU products. A big save for OU kosher. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Rabbi Chaim Goldberg, a rabbinic coordinator at OU Kosher. Really appreciate your time for the nine days. It's nice to hear about kosher fish and to learn what we should and shouldn't do. Thank you to our producer, Alex Cook, who is uh, behind the uh, control board, pressing all the big big buttons and small ones as well. And uh, thank you to the listener. We really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning into the Stunt Show. My name is Mayor Fertig, and stay tuned to the Nachum Siegel Network. There's plenty gr- more great programming coming up. Take care, everyone.